my guards perform their duties incompetently, and now they must prove themselves worthy to remain among us. Okay, I am Bolo. Uh, oh no. Oh, oh no, I'm afraid of heights! That was easy. Second opponent. Polo! Polo! Headbutt! Polo! I'll go catch you! Oh no! That's my stomach! Number four, try to run. He is dead. In today's episode, we'll be discussing our favourite title tracks from albums in Tavern Tour, and in the main discussion, we will dive into Enter the Dragon, a movie with Bruce Lee. At the end of the episode, Inon will introduce the topic of next episode, the Muppets movie. Hello, and welcome to The Culture Quest. We are but humble adventurers, and today, we don't think, we feel. With me, as always, are Peter. Hello. And Barrio. Hi! <laughs> Sorry, I had, to, I had to do something like Bruce Lee, but it wasn't really good. <laughs> and I am Inon. Thank you, the listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. Today we're talking about Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon, a major movie in the kung fu genre uh, from 1973. But before we get to that, let's do some Tavern Talk. Tavern Talk! <laughs> that went horribly. So today we're talking about music again. Um, on two recent Tavern Talks, we've discussed our favorite album openers and album closers. Today, we're talking about our favorite title tracks. That is, we're talking about songs that share the name with the album they're on. I love title tracks. Every time I listen to a new album and I notice that it has a title track, I pay more attention to it without even thinking about it. I guess everyone does that, right? No, you actually, I, I, I kind <laughs> of... Because um, I've just seen so much disrespect two title tracks so like it'll just be like the worst well, not the worst song but the, the one that there clearly is a b-side and then they'll put that as the title track i just don't know what game they're getting at and it annoys really? me a little bit yeah like i've just seen it too much i've just been rubbed the wrong way too many times to like have any respect for it um i don't to me like if the if the title track is in the first maybe two or three songs then yeah, it, it usually kind of feels kind of a gimmicky kind of thing. Yeah. And, it, you know, it doesn't have the, the gravitas of a good title track, you know? Well, obviously, there are exceptions. But but they usually use the best song as the title, right? Because then they'll be able to... People will hear it and will, they will like it and they will say, oh, that's the name of the song I like and it's an album. Yeah, that's so. what I kind of thought. Well, what about Kid A on um, Kid A? I think there was a... Uh, Kind of an exception. Good day, mate. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know if it's near the end or if it's the closer. And obviously, there are exceptions to that. But if it's near the end, it's usually a song that's it's either a song that stands out or kind of a song that maybe summarizes the album, kind of okay. sums within it the feel of the album. Do you listen to, to an album and kind of like, like you look at the name of, names of the tracks while you're hearing the album? Yeah, like, um, well, take for instance an album I'm listening to for the first time today, which is um, Paul McCartney's new album, McCartney 3. I'll just put it on in order And just when the new track comes up, I'll just look at the title just so I can remember like, if I liked it or not. Mm. But yeah, like it. Yeah, I don't know. I guess there's a, there's, there are a lot of good songs uh, or a lot of good albums with great title tracks. But growing up, whenever I, I saw uh, that's the one with the album name, I always thought like, oh, okay. Like, it just didn't really excite me. That's a, the... the... exact opposite reaction of what I have yeah. uh, when I look when I listen to a new album I it's not that I look up the names of the songs like Peter said but I am interested in how many songs there are how yeah. long they are you know kind of the the dry details and then I do notice if there's a, a title track or not hmm. and then if I see that there is one then I'm kind of waiting for it to come up because I'm I am expecting a bit more from a, a, a title track I, I expect it to stand out a bit. Hmm. I, I never like I always like to go blindly into it mm, so like that I, makes sense yeah so like if anything that's really good will stand out it will come as a surprise with less prejudice you know because when you, when it is the yeah. title track you then you have some sort of expectations from it when you listen to an album that you really like uh, like you listen to it say once a day for a, a couple of weeks do you find that you Do you know the names of the songs after that two weeks or do you never check the names of the songs really I guess it really depends if I like the whole album as a whole or if I like specific songs that mm. uh, that I that I go and pick them specifically yeah I, I I'm I'm really into lo-fi in the past couple of months so and I found an album that I just love it and I I don't know any of the songs the, the names yeah the just names listen to the, the because, to the album as a whole yeah I just keep listening to everything with instrumentals I think it would be tougher yeah you know actually the tracks that I may know the the names of is because it has some kind of like lyrics one of the tracks that I know its name is give me something because it starts with oh give me something and so I remember it yeah but mm. that's it yeah, that makes sense. When I was looking for songs to play today, I kind of wanted to go a step further and find title tracks from self-titled albums, like titles that share the name of the album that is also the name of the band. And I'm sure there's a few, but like off the top of my head, I could think of only one, which is Iron Maiden from the album Iron Maiden by, well, uh, Iron Maiden. <laughs> and it has that kind of title track charm to it. You know, it feels kind of like a title track. It kind of... stands out a bit in that album. You know, I think they play that song on every live show since their first album. And I didn't want to play it today because I think there are better title tracks than that. A lot of my favorite artists don't actually do title tracks. Like um, the one, Get Ready to Cross Off one for the Culture Quest bingo, but Led Zeppelin don't do <laughs> many title tracks. In fact, they do, but um, like they'll have a, they have an album called Houses of the Holy and they have a song called Houses of the Holy, but... Houses of the Holy, the song isn't on the album. So, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> they, they do it a little bit. Like they called one of their live albums, The Song Remains the Same, which they do do that song. 
But then they also do another live album um, recorded in 2007, which was Celebration Day, which is the name of one of their songs, but that song's not actually on that album. So That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit of an eclectic sort of situation. But yeah, so I, I wanted to hit on another one of my favorite artists, Bob Dylan, and he also doesn't really do title tracks that often. He does do them, but... Out of all of his albums, it's only like a handful. Um, you came up with the idea of doing title tracks for this episode, and your favorite artists it, don't do title tracks. <laughs> yeah, it was me. It was me. Um, well, that's because. <laughs> well, we'll get to it later. Why? But um, cool. I did discover a new artist, and he has a he has a cool song, which is a title track. But, cool. So this one's by Bob Dylan, and it's called "The Times They Are a Changing." And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are a-changing Yeah, so this is um, the first song on the album. It's one of my favourite songs from him. It's definitely a top five Dylan song. And, uh, yeah, it still gets played a lot a lot today. The album itself is actually not one of my favourites, but there is, it is still quite a good um, mix of songs there. With God on Our Side is a great one, One Too Many Mornings, and Boots of Spanish Leather. But, um, but yeah, this one really does it for me. I think that back then, more often you'd find the title track as a first song in the album. Yeah. Like, you know, they, they want to open with the title track. They, they don't want to keep you waiting. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they do it as often today. Yeah. One question for the group. Um, might, I might not remember it, but when we were um, listening to Everything in Its Right Place from Kid A, there's like some like sort of broken... I guess speech at the start of that song, and I th- I mm-hmm. feel like he's saying Kid A in those lyrics. Let me let me just have I never a noticed quick that. check because I was listening to him. I'm like, is he saying Kid A at, in this song? They don't. Yeah, they don't say Kid A in Kid A. Yeah, no, I don't think they do. But huh. um, so I was wondering where they got it from. I think they might say it in. Yeah, they do. That's like <laughs> I don't can't believe I. Oh really? Yeah. If you look up the lyrics, the yeah. first things are kid a kid a kid a kid a. So um, <laughs> catchy. He says right. it. He says it You're in right. a better way. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I didn't really notice that. Cool. <laughs> so my will be somewhere in between. I wanted to bring up this song. Really? It's not ah. on my list, but I did. Ah, it's not on your list? I, I, I end up kicking it off. No, <laughs> then, then it doesn't count. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so this is Somewhere in the Between from Streetlight Manifesto's Somewhere in the Between. 
everything is so thought out like every every note every drum beat everything is in its place it's yeah. such a perfect album it's it's a masterpiece and this song especially this sounds like the fallout boy if they existed in the 60s <laughs> so many like so many how, how do you so many trumpets and saxophones and trombones yeah this album has so much energy to it every time I need something to kind of pick me up I'll listen to this album me too it's so fun and this song especially I gotta say this song always always lifts me up so you were born and that was a good day someday you'll die and that's a shame but somewhere in the between there's a life in which we all dream and nothing and no one will ever take that away that's just I want to tattoo it on my back <laughs> can I go next uh, it kind of felt like this one was yours but yeah sorry <laughs> no, I'm, joking. <laughs> I'm joking no you took you took you took all uh, what I wanted to say so it was oh, good okay yeah. I'm sorry next time I'll shut up <laughs> no 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 it was good it was good yeah go ahead mine is I'll play it in the background because it has a kind of an intro it's Fleetwood Mac's Tusk from the album Ooh. Tusk which came out in 1979 Peter do you know this song? yeah I've I, I'm honestly struggling to remember it but I do remember listening to their Rumors album which is like you know the the biggest album ever um, yeah and then I got onto this and I can't remember I, that I loved the album to be honest but I do remember the, the song a little bit I don't really know Rumors by Fleetwood Mac uh, which is their biggest album I know only this one Tusk and I got to know this album and this song specifically because it was in Kevin Smith's movie Tusk oh, so yeah. not only is this uh, you know the, the title track of the, the album Tusk it's the title track of that movie hmm. which is not a great movie but anyway <laughs> I really I, I do like uh, this album Tusk it's uh, I think it from what I can tell a bit different from rumors most of the songs on Tusk kind of sound like small to me yeah and this one in terms of its feel it's it's darker and it's louder it's a bit intense you know kind of takes the album in a different direction it has trumpets and stuff we'll be able to hear them in a second it definitely stands out as a as a good title track maybe should and in terms of its position in the album it's the penultimate song it's track 19 out of 20. Tusk. This is the next one. <laughs> like, by the end of the song, it's, it's really big. There's a bunch of trumpets and the guitar is stronger. I really like this song. Well, I, I remember playing Rumors on repeat for a long time. I used to know, like, every song, like, all, you know, everything about it. It was... Um, fantastic album I listened to this album with uh, a, a few months ago or like a year and a bit ago and I was kind of bored by it but I kind of felt that if I give it a chance I'd like it you know I, I just have to listen to it enough to find out what people like about it and I planned to do it on our first episode like that's mm. the album that when I came up with the idea for the podcast that's the album that was part of the inspiration for this podcast and I Uh, I suggested it to Peter and you said that you already know the album by heart so oh uh, yeah I do remember that actually so for my second song this one kind of just had to be here because it was I don't know it's such a fantastic guitar song it has probably one of the most simple and best riffs ever on a song again from one of those bands that doesn't do a lot of 
um, title track songs, but Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. So, so you think you could tell Heaven from hell Blue skies from pain Can you tell a green field what album is this from? Is that a test? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you almost got me as well. <laughs> is this the album with uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond? Yes, that's the one. So yeah. the first song is um, called Shine On You Crazy Diamond. I think maybe part one to five. I think I can't so. quite remember. Yeah. And then there's a song called Welcome To Machine. Great song. Have A Cigar. A great song. Then this song. And then the fifth song, there's only five songs on this album because Shine and New Crazy Diamond, both sort of parts go very long. The last one is also Shine and New Crazy Diamond, but that's like parts like six or 12 or whatever it is. But um, yeah. yeah, it's a 45-minute album, so it's standard, but those two songs do take up quite a bit of time. I have listened to Shine and New Crazy Diamond a bunch of times. It's really great. Like I don't know the rest of the album. I only know mm. Wish You Were Here from you know people playing it on guitar, on like bonfires and stuff. Yeah, and it does capture the meaning of the album, I think, um, quite mm, well. That's it's cool. It's actually just a really meaningful song, you know. No, don't stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I see you typing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sounded a bit panicked. A bit, yeah. <laughs> don't stop it, please. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're leaving that in. That's perfect. <laughs> this one's actually one of the least electric songs um like most of the other songs sort of have more going on in terms of um more effects or just um sort of bigger build-ups and stuff this one does seem like the most sort of regular sort of format song but mm, okay. yeah it does it but it i don't know it kind of brings it home because it's not the last song on the album but it's the last one before the shine and you crazy diamond which is sort of like an outro almost there is an album by actually an Israeli artist, but he's actually making a name of itself around Europe, especially France, I think, called Asaf Avidan. I might have played one of these, his tunes before. Yeah, you did. You played one of his album closers, I think. Yeah. You did. Yeah, it is. Really talented correct. singer. So he has, a, he has a very special album that I think that don't really get enough attention called Poor Boy Lucky Man. And the cool thing is that the album kind of went in two different uh, packages. One called Poor Boy, the other one called Lucky Man. Same and, songs, though? Yeah, but there is a song uh, in the album that is called Poor Boy slash Lucky Man, and according to which package you, you got, mm -hmm. that's how the song was written in. Like, huh. and, and that's kind of oh. like the point of the song, that it's, it's the same thing, but you can look at it a different perspective, like you can see him as a lucky oh. man or you can see him as a poor boy. And that's interesting if you think about title tracks, because... If you do like you do, you know, and, and you kind of go through the tracks be before listening, then you kind of approach this song where, where you say, oh, okay, that's that's a song about, about a poor boy, or that's a that's song. That's really cool. Yeah. Mm. Huh, I never heard about that. So I'll play it, and we'll hear a bit of it at the start, and then I will uh, move it a bit to a more interesting part, because it's a kind of relaxed song. Without the insides of his chest didn't know how he was blessed and all the little girls started a blast 
Such a great voice. Really good voice. So I'm going to move it to uh, 240. That's a cool concept for a title track. I really like it. Really cool. A great song as well. Yeah. I kind of missed stuff I've done in the Mojo's Prime in Israel. I remember they used to play a lot of shows, and I never went to those. And I got to go to one where he played an acoustic set. I think it was him with an acoustic guitar and maybe a cello player as well. And it was so small. He's such an impressive singer. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of off now. Like, I don't really like him now. Like, if I listen to his new albums, I kind of get annoyed. Not as good, I think. Like, he had a, he had a band and, and the three albums that they got out were really good, all kind of like in, in that vibe. And then he started his solo career and he kind of became like a prima donna <laughs> say yeah, diva yeah, yeah diva and, um, he is very talented talented though uh, 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 uh my next song as much as peter can't stop himself from bringing up led zeppelin mm-hmm. i have to play tom waits songs <laughs> ah tom waits yeah and this is one of my favorite tom waits songs it's uh called blue valentine from the album blue valentine which came out in 1978 Blue Valentine All the way from Philadelphia It's a quiet song. It's mostly just this kind of beautiful guitar in the background with Wade's distinctive singing voice. Even though it's small, though, it, it's a strong song. It's really evocative, you know? The, the guitar sound is really special, I think. It's kind of a sad song. It's the last song on this album. It's a really strong closer to this album. Baby, you got me checking In my rearview mirror That's why I'm always on the run That's why I changed my name I didn't think you'd ever find could actually just be like a studio jam it feels so relaxed like you know maybe they just recorded the album or something were absolutely defeated and was just yeah. like you know let's just play they're like you know laying down on the couch and that guy's just like noodling and then tom waits just you know having a go yeah and then they you know let's include it put it as the last track Okay, alright, so this is what inspired the Tavern Talk today. I've uh, discovered a new artist, not a new artist, it's, you know, obviously it's old artist, but um, <laughs> yeah, I've been getting into Frank Zappa lately, who does, like, he does a lot of, like, comedic songs, but then he also does some songs like this one, which is not comedic, because this one's actually an instrumental, but um, out of all the albums as well, this is probably one of my favourites from his. This one's called um, Apostrophe. It's got like this, almost like a great, I don't know if you call it a medley, but one of those ones where a few short songs that really flow on from each other at the start. Mm. And then this is like sort of 
what I would call like the sort of the peak of the mountain um, for this album and then it's all kind of a little bit more relaxed after this but yeah it, it's just a fantastic song. Man that guitar sound, mm. it's so fat, so fuzzy, it's great. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you told me you listened to this album or to Frank Zappa in general uh, a while back and I gave this album a couple of listens and I really really enjoyed it yeah um, f- with Frank Zappa like obviously I don't actually don't know the name of the drummer but I was talking to my dad and he says why don't you ever listen to anything except for Led Zeppelin and I said well when I actually look at my music interest Zeppelin is not the middle of it like in terms of like the style of music you Because I don't actually like to listen to anything that's so similar to Led Zeppelin because it's like being short and you don't ever want to stand next to anyone that's tall like because mm. you just you don't ever want to have anything that you can directly compare because it is not going to stand up to it you know so mm. like I listen to Pink Floyd which is a bit like much different Beatle is obviously different Bob Dylan's solo, solo artist right your head now that I'm getting into is is obviously completely different if you get too close to Zeppelin then you As soon as I get a song that's similar, I'll just stop listening and listen to a Zeppelin album. So there's an orbit around Zeppelin, which, you know, nothing else can sort of, like, not fall, fall into, like, a black hole. But um, this is, like, uh, I'd say the guitar style, it's very rough, a bit dirty, which is kind of how I like it. And um, he's very similar to Jimmy Page. The drummer is one of... The, probably my, now my second favorite drummer yeah. behind John Bonham because he sounds great he's got such a sort of bravado to it it sounds really good and then um, with the singing he's a good singer but you obviously don't get any of like the Robert plant and the bass is um, is is whilst it's really good it's obviously like it's not because sometimes it's not a dedicated bass player it's just him sort of doing mm. that role so obviously it's not some of the technique but um, besides that like it's it's It has a very similar sound to Zeppelin, and um, this is probably one of their most Zeppelin, or one of his most Zeppelin-sounding ones, just um, a lot of sort of drumming and bass yeah. and stuff like that. So. Let me ask you this, though. Yeah. Let's say you didn't know the album, and you started listening yeah. to it, you, get, you start yeah. to get to know it, and then you, mm. you look at the list of the songs and you found out that this instrumental is the, the title track. Would you be surprised? Mm. Yeah, I would be. But there's one um, song at the start called Donate the Yellow Snow and that sort of that starts off and then, and then there's like a few other songs after that which sort of continue on. If I was making this album, I 100% would have called it Yellow Snow or something like that yeah. like because that is kind of the album and this is like just another highlight, you know it's interesting yeah I don't know but, but yeah I would be surprised especially an instrumental I don't know I, it, it feels weird to do as a child track but I'm not complaining it's it's fantastic yeah but he's a weird guy he's like that's that should be said he's super weird <laughs> the only instrumental title track I can think of off the top of my head is closing time by Tom Waits which I played when we did the closers and I You know the whole album feels like being in a bar and talking to people and that song feels like the closing time you know they're closing down the bar and you have to go home so that makes sense but other than that I can't think of instrumental title tracks really that's hmm. uh, I think that's uh, kind of special yeah, it's the only one on my sort of short list that was instrumental cool 
There's an album called Lost on You with a track called Lost on You. Oh, LP. You played yes. one of her songs before. I recognize like her voice is pretty similar to a Safa dance. <laughs> yeah, a bit. <laughs> like the the singing style is a bit different, but yeah, the voice kind of sounds similar. So I just went on Apple Music just to um, just to sort of download the album and um, it says the Rihanna slash uh, hit writer. so she obviously writes some songs for other people. What do you think about this song, Barrio? Is it, uh, does it capture the album as a title track? I think that's her most famous song. And I, I think it's the most catchy one from the album. And yeah, I think it does. So this is my last song I'm going to play. The last title track for today is Scorpions in Trance from, obviously, the album In Trance. It's the second track on the album, which I usually think is too early for a title track. But maybe in the 60s and 70s, that maybe was passable. And this is Scorpion's third album from Anyway, I started listening to The Scorpions around 2010, and I really, really love their 70s albums. I think they have like five. And during the, the period of time in which I listened to them uh, the most, they came and performed in Israel twice, and I went both times. And in both times, I thought that they didn't play their best 70s material. Then I kind of looked into it, and I found out that, you know, in all except the last of their 70s albums, they had a guitar player called Ulrich Roth, or... Ole John Roth and his style of playing and songwriting I think is kind of an important part of what I liked in their 70s album and I think that after he left they had a few pretty good albums but not as good but around those years I used to go to a few like music festivals in Europe like almost once a year and in 2013 I bought a ticket to go to Wacken Open Air Festival in Germany and When I bought the ticket, I saw that Oli John Roth was listed in the list of artists that he would play in the festival, and I was really happy about that. I knew that he had a few solo albums, and also that he plays... I think that's Oli John Roth playing the solo. And I knew that he also plays a few, you know, 70s Scorpion stuff in his shows. A few weeks before the festival, they released the finalized schedule of the festival, and I couldn't find Oli John Roth on it. So, And they also removed his name from the list of the artists. And I was kind of disappointed about that. I emailed the festival, I emailed Oli John Roth's official website to ask about that, but I didn't get an answer. So I kind of forgot about that. Um, and when I got to the festival, 
on the first day I met uh, two German guys who were working in the festivals. I, I think they were selling clothes or something. And every day they would work throughout the day. And when they would finish uh, working, we would meet up and go see shows together. You know, on one of those days when we met up, they told me that they heard that there's an unlisted show by Oli John Roth on like the smallest stage of the festival. It's like in this remote tent that, you know, usually has smaller bands playing in it. And the show is supposed to start any minute now. So uh, obviously we went to check it out. And I didn't want to get too excited about that in case it didn't really happen. But when we got there, they just finished playing the first song and they start playing this one in trance. I love this song. Like it's probably my favorite Scorpion song and I do really love the 70s stuff. And what made that show really special to me is the fact that the crowd was really, really tiny. I think there were like only 30 or 40 people in front of that stage. Like, maybe because it was unlisted. Maybe because no one knew there was a show. There were only like 30 or 40 people there. And I think that like me, most of those people were fans of the 70s Scorpions albums. Because you know, I looked around and everyone was so excited to hear this song and other old songs being played, they were all smiling and looking around and kind of sharing that moment. I was really lucky to have been there, I could have easily missed it, and every time I listen to this song, which is <laughs> fairly often, I think of that show. That's a nice story. Enter the Dragon. What a weird name. <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't make any sense. I don't think there's no dragons at there's all. There's no dragon. They don't even say the word dragon even once. I think. No, I thought it might have been like dragon. Might have been like the mindset, like into the mind of a dragon, or like, or even maybe the island or something. Maybe like that was the dragon, you know, yeah. forged in fire or something. But I don't understand it still. So. I think the movie was supposed to be called Blood and Steel. But when they were working on the movie, Bruce Lee thought Enter the Dragon was a cool name, so they went with that. <laughs> that that's it. That, Glad and still that lot, not that much That makes better. a lot of sense, because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyway, Enter the Dragon is is a movie uh, from 1973. It's a martial art film that was directed by Robert Klaus. Uh, it features... Bruce Lee, and apparently uh, Bruce Lee has died a bit before the movie was released. I think it's one of the most famous uh, martial arts films. Yeah, it is. We start by seeing Bruce Lee's character named Lee, kind of like in a Shaolin temple, and, and we can see how well he kung fus. <laughs> Wing chungs. Then there's this really funny scene where his master kind of tells him that they practice Zen together and they see that there is no me and there is no opponent and everything is kind of really Zen, really Buddhist. And then he sends him to avenge the honor of his <laughs> clan because apparently there is uh, an opponent that needs to be dealt with. So Lee teams up with the Interpol or the FBI or I don't know, something like yeah, that. Some too. kind of secret agency. Yeah, which prefer to stay in the shadow because they're they're afraid of opening a war. But anyway, they're after this guy, Han, and that's the guy who Lee's supposed to get because not only that he disgraced the Shaolin Temple by learning the, the martial arts, but then using it for evil, he's also like a criminal who sells drugs and has Kind of a weapons. drug lord. 
Yeah. Yeah, he does like legitimately evil things. <laughs> yeah. As yeah. well so, as that dastardly learning other martial arts, but yeah. It's it's kind of like a Shredder from Ninja Turtles. If <laughs> if it helps any of the listener to kind of who couldn't get past the name of the movie because it annoyed him so much and didn't watch. <laughs> so you can imagine Shredder as being Han. So Han is doing what every common drug lord is doing, which is once every three years is holding a, a martial arts tournament where he, he brings people he don't know to fight each other. He brings <laughs> um, Lee, obviously. We don't know how we got in touch with any no. of the and opponents. It's, it's now that I think about it, it is kind of weird that he invited Lee to the tournament because he is the guy who corrupted Lee's Shaolin Temple. He is the one who yeah. basically disgraced it. Yeah, he tainted their name. Yeah. So why would he invite Lee at all? Maybe it's kind of like a way to, to do like, ha ha, I'm so good that I'm, I invite you to come and fight. Yeah. It's one of those movie tropes where like, if you don't invite him, then it's like, oh, you've already lost. You know, like you, you're just mm. waiting for them to come. And then it's like that mental game. But if you invite him, if he doesn't come, then you've won. If he comes, then I guess that's just something you got to do. You just got to like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You just can't let him win. So. Yeah, it's kind of like you can't really back down from a fight in those things. Like, yeah. Yeah. And also the movie have to happen. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we had to invite him. No, that's but, true. Yeah, but uh, you always get the sense, though, that, like, Han's never like, oh, you know, I, I did sort of do all those legal things and sort of disgrace the temple, but, you know, I'm sure it'll all be fine. Like, you, you do get the sense that Han knows that there's some sort of plot against him. Yeah, I don't know. Like, he's just one of those evil guys where he's like, yeah, Shit's bad, but you know, I'm 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 evil, so <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, like he's not like he doesn't have this uh, expectation that everything's going to run smoothly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you lose that when you lose your hands. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and also Lee has uh, another reason. He, he didn't know it at first, but when he started to review the intel over Han, he understood that. Well, I'm not sure how he understood it, but. Because there, there, it's a bunch of flashbacks, but you understand that Han's bodyguard is the the guy who made... He's basically, Han's bodyguard is responsible for the death of Lei's sister, yeah. Lei's mission has a few levels to it. Like, he wants to restore the honor of his Shaolin temple, he wants to avenge his sister's death, and he wants to bring a criminal to justice. All yeah. three good things. Yeah. He's very Definitely. heroic. When I was watching the movie, I just expected, like, at the end, for his sister to, like, emerge pop up like, yep. yeah yeah like i just <laughs> i totally agree with I was you. like oh you know and then there would be another flashback after and then <laughs> but then it didn't happen i was like uh-oh <laughs> oh, damn <laughs> i feel my expectations were led me astray here so because it didn't make the movie worse but i was like oh whoops <laughs> oh yes we weren't meant to think that oh well so anyway, Lee meets two other contestants. One of them is Roper, which is a martial art guy. And there's Williams, <laughs> which is another martial art guy. But, but Williams is black. Yeah. Roper is white. So as you can see, we have diversity in the movie. So that's very important. And um, Bruce Lee is Asian. So they've really yeah. future-proofed themselves. Yeah, there's something for everyone. And there was one New Zealandian guy which was yeah. my favorite character in the movie. When they put him on the boat, that What's was your style? Great. <laughs> yeah. By the way, that's I, for me, that was the, the great reveal of the movie. The South Park joke of, What's your style? What's your style? You can't fish my style. <laughs> it's from Enter the Dragon. Yeah, that was amazing. It's a famous line, yeah. 
What's your style? <laughs> I always thought it was Sean Connery or something. I did too. There was the most, I gotta say, truly, it was one of the most boring fighting scenes I've ever seen the, in the mirror room. Like, I understood the artistic intent, but it was so not convincing and so incredibly slow. How many times in movies have they done that mirror scene? It happens all the time. And it's always yeah, it the does. same. Like, you just follow one character, you see their reflection, then you see the other character, and they look like they're going the other way, looks like they're going to meet, and then they see something, and then they see the person, and then they strike, and it's like the mirror, <laughs> and it's like... I've just he- seen it so many times. Like, it should be, like, yeah. copyrighted. Yeah, but this <laughs> is the origin of that trope. Yeah. I don't know, actually. Visually, it's so... It, it's pretty impressive, if you think about it. But it's, it's cool. Yeah, like, it's... if no one had done it before, very cool. I've just seen it so many times. You know what bothered me in, in that scene? Because in some angles, it was very clear that the two characters are seeing each other. Like, they're facing each other. Yeah. Because, like, you saw Bruce Lee standing next to a mirror, and you saw that the reflection of Han is right next to him. Yeah. So, it's very easy to assume that they're just looking at each other. Yeah, because, like, usually you kind of want that, where they're both in the same scene, but they can't see each other. So, that's... Or, yeah. or like... They can't, yeah, but they're not seeing each other. But it was kind of obvious that they both had to, like, when they were filming it, they had to stand next to each other. And then, they like, the camera guys were just, like, on tripods, like, swinging around, seeing what looks cool and stuff. But, yeah, because, like, yeah. you could see it because they're in the same panel, like, on the same, in the same mirror. You could see them both. So, obviously, they had to be right next to each other. But, yeah. I was always looking, like, just to see if I could find, like, some guy's, like, foot sticking out or something like that in the mirrors. Because, like... That's actually, like, a pretty hard thing to film, I'd imagine, like, with the mirrors. Because, mm, like, yeah. you really got to look around just to see if you got any camera guys or something in the shot. So. Yeah. The other interesting thing that happens in the movie is that Lee is finally getting his revenge at... O'Hara. O'Hara. Yeah, Han's bodyguard. Who is responsible for Lee's sister's death. Mm. Yep. And he kills him in a horrifying way <laughs> i found that they're they're just doing a battle as part of the tournament yeah and lee is just kicking his butt all around and ohara is getting angry and he takes two bottles and breaks them and try to use them as knives in order to fight dirty and kill lee and lee just not only kicks them out of his hand but kicks him on the ground and then he jumps on him and just smashes him with his leg. It was disturbing. <laughs> yeah, but that shot became kind of a, a trope as well. Like, I, you know, he jumps on uh, O'Hara's face and then there's like a slow motion close-up on, on Lee's face. And he's like, he's got that, the most intense expression on his face for like, what is it, 15 or 20 seconds? Yeah. <laughs> I think they used it in so many parodies and so many other kung fu movies it became such a recognizable moment i think <laughs> that was my favorite fight scene because it was a little bit sporting at the at the start like it was like not just throwing each other through like chairs and stuff like that like there was some like what i would consider to be like combat and then obviously had the cool ending where the guy like gives like, if you win by like cracking bottles open it's like ah uh, yeah I mean, you technically won, but, like... No, everyone knew he was fighting. Yeah, dirty. like, you kind of... He was like, disgracing You himself. lose, and then there's no redeeming it. So, like, as soon as you, like, yeah. crack those bottles, it's just like, well, you know, mate, you've, you've lost. Just give it up. <laughs> I really 
like really didn't know what to expect with this movie. Like I wasn't sure if it's going to be something I could appreciate because I'm not really into Kung Fu movies. And I'll admit that I kind of expected the fight scenes to be different though. Like you, they, they basically just threw each other around and threw each other through chairs and stuff. I totally expected something else. Like I didn't watch a lot of Kung Fu movies. The only ones I did watch were Jackie Chan movies. And I mean um, some of Chan's uh, Hong Kong productions. I don't mean them. I watched a few American Chan movies, but the, the Hong Kong ones were more kind of the Kung Fu genre style. And I always thought that Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan had a lot in common because, well, because of the Pokemons, Hitmonlee Hitmon and Hitmonchan. Yeah. There are two Pokemons, Hitmonlee and Hitmonchan, named after Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan. One, Hitmonlee is the kicking Pokemon and the other one is the boxing Pokemon. Hmm. And I, so I thought that, you know, Lee and Chan are somewhat comparable, like that their fighting scenes would be somewhat similar. But I think that Chan's fighting scenes are a bit more like like a dance, you know, they are more developed. And maybe because Lee's movies were older, I think that the genre might have still been relatively new, so they're less impressive. I kind of wanted more impressive fight scenes, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know, maybe at the time they were more impressive. I don't know, an example for something that didn't age well is, is some of the camera angles during the fights. Like, they sometimes would show the point of view of the fighter who was defending, mm. and those look silly. <laughs> Especially in the fight with Han. From the point of view of Lee, and you see Han just punching the air or kicking the air, and it looked... So silly, I thought. But, I don't know, I think that in the end, I found a lot to enjoy in this movie. Like, the soundtrack is great, I think. I kind of loved Roper and Williams, the other fighters. Uh, I hope that, you know, Kung Fu fans will forgive me, but I enjoyed this movie the most when I was looking at it as a funny movie, you know? Like, I think it's a great movie to watch with friends, with drinks, and to make fun of all of the stereotypical kung fu genre stuff in the movie. A lot of movies have made fun of the kung fu genre, and I think that a lot of the jokes come from this movie. And it's a lot of fun to recognize them and make fun of them with friends, but still, I, I don't think that this movie... I, I don't think it's a bad movie. There's a lot of cool things here. Going into this, I was like... I wouldn't say Jackie Chan fan, but I've seen like a lot of the Rush Hours. I think I've seen a couple of his Hong Kong ones, and I've seen him in a few other things as well. And um, I really like it. Uh, he's just like he's one of those stand-up guys, you know. Like you get a yeah, few people in every genre, which is just like his character's good. He's just willing to meet the fans. He's a bit of an ambassador for the genre. I really yeah. like Jackie Chan. Really family-friendly sort of guy. So growing up. He was sort of like the martial arts guy for me. And whenever I saw Bruce Lee, I was like, oh, I don't really know what he's from. Like, is he from a movie or is he just sort of fictional, a bit like Chuck Norris or something in between? Hmm. So, yeah, I, I actually had high expectations for him. I was like, wow, this guy's got to be better than Jackie Chan. So going into this, I was excited because I do like the simple films sometimes. Like, This is a kind of a simple film. And yeah. I do like them. Like as long as you enjoy it when you watch it, I don't think it needs to be like a Christopher Nolan film every time. Yeah. Going into this, I think the plot was kind of it was a little bit underpowered sometimes. Like there wasn't that much emphasis on making everything sort of tie up really well, which is like obviously it's a little bit disappointing. But like you kind of take what you can get with these films, and. The action, I did say that, like, there was a lot of, like, kind of throwing chairs and stuff like that. But on the whole, actually, I can't, I did enjoy the action. I thought 
it was just short spurts of kind of like kung fu so like i guess knowing that bruce lee is like a legitimate martial artist like it's nice to know that you're seeing someone who's good at it you know like as yeah. opposed to like you know some of the newer movies where they just get you know marvel actors to kind of just try <laughs> all these backflips and stuff like it is nice to see kind of like a legitimate martial artist because even if he's doing like working it a little bit up for the camera like he's he's still trained he's still doing the things that he probably would do so i did yeah. like that and it's just, it's just got to be said but he's like the fittest person i've ever seen like it's ridiculous oh yeah um, a bit smaller than i expected him to be I, but i, I yeah, kind of like that because he seems like it's not all about size it's more about like yeah. how you do it but yeah like he he's um I I thought he was quite charming as well, um, Bruce Lee. Like I thought, I thought he was really charming. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't know, it's something about him. He just seemed like a stylish kind of guy. Like he very sort of not too phased. Felt like he had a, a, an honor about him that um, you know, kind of like an aura almost that followed him. Like he really reminded me of younger Michael Jackson. Did you think yeah, so as well? Actually, Because that's I a good... couldn't stop thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, a little bit. Like, you just felt like there was something special, you know? Yeah. Something was special. And, like, he knows that he's special. Mm. I don't know. Something about it really was charming. I think the similarity between him and Michael Jackson, I mean, this is off the top of my head because I didn't make that connection, but you feel like they've done a lot of the hard work behind the scenes. And mm. so when they come and do whatever they want to do, They don't tell you, oh, look, I was working on this for years. Like, this album was so tough. Like, spent so many years in the studio. No, Michael will just come out and he'll just say, um, yeah, so, uh, this is my next album. Um, you know, like, he'll just, he'll just, I don't know. I kind of respect that about artists sometimes where they don't, like, a lot of artists nowadays are sort of like saying, oh, you know, this podcast really released midnight. I was staying up editing nine hours. And some people are just like, oh, welcome to the next podcast. And like, They they keep all that grueling stuff under the surface. Yeah. I mean, it, it's good to know how hard people are working, but we know, like we we just know from looking at him that this guy takes it seriously. And then, but he was still humble about he's it. He's humble about it, but he's also showing off in this subtle sense where, like, he doesn't feel like he needs to talk about it. He knows he's good, and he's kind of just yeah. He makes it look effortless. In a, is what I'm trying to say. It's like um. If you're making like a, a like a wallet out of like leather or something like, obviously up until you've actually done the last stitch, there's still like little hairs everywhere and like you haven't shaved off the sides and it's still <laughs> you know still a bit rough. But when you when you finish it off, you clear it off, you wipe it down. Like when you sell that product, you don't want to like tell people like, oh, you know this. For a long time, this looked rough. I made it look really good. Like it's like you you sell it as if like look how easy it was to make this wallet. Like we're the best wallet makers and stuff mm. like that. Like it just you know like it's it's one of those. I'm I'm kind of circling around the point here because it's a hard point to make, but it definitely <laughs> feels like some some people do like to pretend almost that it was super easy, even though you know it can't. They know it can't. They know you know. That it couldn't have been easy, but they like to just say like, "Yeah, we just did it," you know. Like it's one of those like things of success when you do something really good, like artistically, you have the option basically whether like it's like a form you tick the box like, do you want to be the guy that goes like, "Oh man, this was such a grueling effort. I'm so glad I got through it," or do you want to be the guy who just goes like, "Yeah, hope you guys like it," you know, like just 
so yeah, it's kind of like one of those things. But he's of him and Michael Jackson definitely go the way of saying like, I'll do everything behind the scenes, and when the fans see it, I'm gonna put on a smiling face and pretend I just do that. But uh, yeah, to wrap it up. Yeah, so some some bits of the film obviously did lack a little bit. It's not shot like cinematically as beautiful as some films, but um, I I actually enjoy it. I think on the whole, it's definitely a positive experience. I I really enjoyed it. And the sniff test for me is just when I'm watching it, am I having a good time? Not like, is this going to be one of those films I'm going to watch again? Or will it stand up to like a long conversation about it, even though that's what we do with these films? But (laughs) Yeah, I did have a good time when I watched it, and that's what matters to me the most. I'm I'm with Peter actually. Like I think, like someone who who's seen movies that are out today, he won't find this like a, a masterpiece or a coherent in in any way. I think, <laughs> but but it's fun, and especially when you remember that it, you can recognize a lot of of references. A lot of references. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's kind of like funny to to reverse engineer it. Like you, you finally understand things that you've seen. Like we we just had with the with the South Park episode with the style. What's your style? <laughs> it's it's like fun to understand where where it comes from, and I think that Bruce Lee is definitely like in today's standards, it's probably a bit less than what everyone talks about. But it's interesting to see. Like again, you need to kind of avoid judging it by today's standards and. And then it's you uh, have to remember that it's the first big American kung fu movie. Like this kicked off a genre basically. This was the first of its kind. That's crazy, yeah. Like I can't say that it's it's a good movie. I it is enjoyable. We kind of touched the story. I expected it to not make sense at all. Like it's a kung fu movie. You don't expect a lot from it. But I think that the story of Enter the Dragon it's not great, but it's okay and it's it reminded me a lot of Bond movies. Uh, an evil guy and a bunch of henchmen and a secret lair, a secret agents. It's like a, th- this movie felt like a mixture between a Bond movie and a, the Kung Fu genre. And I, I thought it was a yeah, pleasant surprise. Yeah, it did have that Bond film, didn't it? Like yeah. going to another island to sort of take down the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the story, you know, while, while not realistic or anything, it was more interesting than I expected it to be. I expected it to be much flatter. Some of it wasn't too well explained. The part that stood out to me was I didn't really get why Lee's character went to visit his mom's and sister's grave and apologizing for what he's going Mm. to do before going to the island as a secret agent. But I I thought it was fun. I thought it was fun that they had like five (laughs) flashbacks in the same scene. Some were inside other flashbacks. I thought it was funny. (laughs) You seem fine about it. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of loved the acting in the movie. I'm not going to say that it was really great, but I enjoyed it. Like, I think the the acting had a bunch of charm to it. We we talked about uh, Bruce Lee's charm and charisma. I thought William's character, played by Jim Kelly, was a lot of fun. Like, it was very 70s style, very blaxploitation-like. Yep. But he was really fun to watch, had a few really awesome lines. I liked Roper. I wasn't sure throughout the movie if I should like him or not. He was, you know, sleazy yeah. and crooked. But in the end, I was happy to he, find he out He was that a was... good actor, actually. Yeah, he really, I really liked him as an actor, yeah. He had a couple of lines that just cracked me up. Uh, everyone, I think, did. But yeah. <laughs> there were so many memorable lines from this movie, like, boards don't hit back, which... I think I've heard this line yeah. mentioned so many times, like as a Bruce Lee quote. But 
the the Williams line, uh, one of the best lines when Hans says to, to Williams, you must be prepared for defeat. And Williams says, I don't waste my time with it. When it comes, I won't even notice. I'll be too busy looking good. <laughs> Great line. <laughs> That makes no sense. <laughs> no. <laughs> I won't even notice it. That's not a good that's thing, man. That's actually bad. <laughs> yeah, it's that's like, sad. oh, are you ready to lose? It's like, oh, well, everything takes me by surprise nowadays. Like, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a brag. Like, yeah. you know, I'm so unprepared, it wouldn't surprise me or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, I expected less from the acting. I think it was better than I expected. I never expected much less <laughs> if someone asks are you prepared to lose right is it <laughs> is it a better move to say yes i am prepared to lose like you know i prepare for everything so i guess this is a thing and i've prepared for it or is it better to say like, i haven't prepared for it because that's the one thing i don't have to prepare because i've prepared for everything else what's the what's the strategy because you like, look too good <laughs> i guess he did add that <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, like, oh, like obviously, like, if you're a kung fu guy, you should be prepared for everything. Except, is preparing to lose, is that a good thing? <laughs> or is that a bad thing? Th- there is humbleness in kung fu and Shaolin and everything. So, yeah, you they would be willing to admit that they're prepared for loss. But, yeah, maybe, uh, what's his name, Williams, is too cocky. So, he, he, yeah. he doesn't even have to prepare for it. That's, like, the line that would separate, like, a pro from, like, maybe, like, a hustler or something like if if a pro could actually just say like you know i've prepared to win and i've prepared to lose like i've yeah. done everything that i can whereas a cocky guy might be like prepare to lose why would i prepare to lose bro like you know like <laughs> yeah th- that line and the fact that when they were offered a uh, uh, escort for the night he took four ladies while lee took none yeah and then <laughs> i think that's another uh, sign for that Roper, i think she's like choose one i'm like are, we, are you running out like, <laughs> also when he was like, oh, I've, I can't remember the exact line, but he said something like, um, you know, I think I've already found one or something like that. I was like, is that allowed? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, and also I didn't understand. I didn't know that she would understand. Like, I was like, what happens if she just like, she's like, oh, cool. What one? <laughs> like, like <laughs> it's so smooth. I just wasn't sure whether she would get it. You haven't yeah. specifically said <laughs> I like that part, though. It showed a lot about the characters. Like, Lee wouldn't take uh, an escort. Uh, Williams took four, and, and Roper just chose the hostess. It did. Like it, the... was, it was good, yeah. And, um, you know, because Williams was so cocky, because he was yeah uh, absorbed with himself, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe there was a sign that he was going to die, the character that was going to die. Now, oh, maybe I'm looking too deeply Honestly, into this. Honestly, I did see that he was going to die. Like, I just... I kind of knew. I don't know. It feels bad to say, but often they do it with the black guy. It's just one of those sad realities. As soon as you see him, they go, oh, he's expendable. Yeah, that happens often. You know, like... It's kind of like a a well-known joke, right? That uh, in horror movies, the... The black guy dies first. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of those... It's like a hangover from 60s movies where they were like, oh, let's just kill the unpopular person or the one that the audience can't identify with or something like that. And now that's bled into like the seventies, but I assume yeah. by like the two thousands that's not happening as much. But I think. I think it I does. Mean, a lot of those horror movies are from the two thousands. So. I think uh, only in recent years they've stopped doing that. But I'll mention that I've read somewhere that in uh, Enter the Dragon, 
Roper was supposed to die and Williams was supposed to live, but they then cast John Saxon, the guy who played uh, Roper, and he was kind of a star and people liked him, so they changed okay. it up mm. to have the likable characters survive. So it's kind of the same theory. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like one of those sad things, though, that like it doesn't taint the movie because obviously you can tell the intentions are good and stuff, but it's yeah. one of those sad things that happens in movies where you can tell like the minority character is like, a bad chance of survival. Yeah. Something I loved about this movie was the soundtrack. Yeah. I think the music in this movie is used very I well. Think sometimes it was a bit cliche, but oh, yeah. I remember the start, I think it was it was either the very start or when um, they're going to like the city or something like that, but there was like a long sequence with like a, quite a long sort of bit of music, which was actually really nice. And like since then, I was like looking out for the music because that really got me onto it. Mm. But yeah, it was really quite nice. I think the music was good, but the sound effects was bad. Yeah, yeah. The, the music obviously has a lot of Chinese music styles in it, but... It also has a lot of influences from 70s Western music, and some of the music, much like the story, I think, feels like it came out of a Bond movie, which I love Bond music, so it's great. Like, every once in a while, there's a few moments in which the music also kind of sounds like a horror film, like they used a lot of maybe horror film sounds, I think, when in the shot where Lee's killing O'Hara, I think there's kind of sounds that really reminded me of horror films and all in all i really loved the soundtrack i really loved how they used music in this film and i got the soundtrack on itunes on uh, apple music and i listened to it a lot in the last few days i really really recommend it i think the whole soundtrack is only like 25 26 minutes so it's short but it's really fun and if we're talking about the the, the sound, sound yeah something i kind of was surprised by like I, I i wasn't sure if the movie is going to be in english or chinese I wasn't really surprised when the first dialogue started and I found out that it's dubbed and the movie was in English. But then I was surprised to realize that while it's dubbed, the character's lips movements yeah. matched the sound. Yeah. Like I expected it to be translated from Chinese to English, but the actors were speaking in English. I later learned that a lot of movies back then didn't record the sound as they were filming. I think I read somewhere that their microphones back then would capture too much noise. So they filmed everything without sound and then recorded all of the dialogue later. Yeah, that's oh. why it sounds weird. Yeah. Okay. You know, this also helped with some of the Asian actors. Like Shi uh, Kien, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. He's the guy who played Han. He didn't know English at all. So when they were filming his part... There was a guy behind the camera that was saying all of the lines before him, and he was trying to just imitate it as best as he yeah. could. Then, you know, later, an English-speaking actor recorded those lines. Mm. I didn't know movies used to be shot that way. This is one of the types of things I wanted to learn and find out while, you know, doing this podcast. I thought it was really interesting. interesting. They basically shot everything without any sound and later added, you know, the dialogue, the music, and the sound effects. And the sound effects <laughs> were... Kind of ridiculous. <laughs> How did you guys think of his um, Bruce Lee's voice in it? I got to say that it was everything I dreamed of. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt that the great performance is the sound that he makes while fighting. That's just priceless. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So according to what Inon said, Bruce Lee actually recorded those high-pitched <laughs> fighting if it was even sounds him. At, a, at a studio. After the fact, oh, yeah, in the studio. 
<laughs> that must have been a fun experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, once you know that everything is recorded after the fact, it's a lot of fun to watch the fighting scenes because like I watched the fight scene between uh, Bolo and the four guards and it's a lot of fun to watch this scene knowing that everything, all of the screams, all of the talking, everything is recorded after the fact. Mm. It's good because it does sound like it's outside though. There's a bit of like air in it. Oh, they've done a pretty good job with that, yeah. By the way, I gotta say that I, that I really like Bolo's character. Fun fact, Bolo's actor name is Bolo. He actually took up that name after that movie. Really? <laughs> after that character, yeah. No way. I think Sorry. just a stage name. I don't think it's his, I don't think he really changed his name to Bolo, but yeah. Maybe because everyone who saw him <laughs> said, oh, you, you're, you're Bolo. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. Just, I'll just change I'll just my name to Bolo. Bolo. <laughs> that's less, less, less exciting. Well, I don't know if it, maybe it's even more exciting. <laughs> I really enjoyed actually his high-pitched sort of voice. Like there's something that happens in, I don't know if it's like Chinese films or just Asian films in general, but in America and stuff like, Guys having lower voices is obviously better. That's why I speak like this in the podcast when I <laughs> artificially lower my voice. But um, in Japanese culture or Chinese culture or just Asian culture in general, I don't think they have that same standard expectation. Yeah, or, yeah the standard. Like, um, I actually think it's quite nice to hear like such a high pitched voice. It's one of those similarities with um, MJ, I guess. But yeah, um, but true. yeah, no, it was good and. Uh, have you guys ever seen those videos of, um, <laughs> this is a tangent, but Dragon Ball Z actors, or uh, maybe I'm getting the show wrong, but like those actors where they play like anime characters and they're like the voice actors and you can see them in the studio and they're just doing things like, and then like, you know, doing like the Goku and all that stuff. And they're just taking a sip of water and then like, and then like it does all the 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 comic book i never did um, now i can't I, wait to do yeah, that <laughs> you should look it up it's hilarious it's uh, hilarious it must be yeah <laughs> i'm looking now <laughs> oh that's <laughs> it looks awesome <laughs> well let us know when you're done with that <laughs> wait are you hearing it nope oh <laughs> <laughs> you have to also see the video because you, you can see the actors like yelling <laughs> it's amusing like like you can see <laughs> You, you can see. All right, fine. <laughs> you can see that. You can see them twitching in real life, like they're. Yeah, I wish I could do those. I, I wish I could do that as my That's job. Hilarious. This is good. Can we do a podcast like this? We'll do this. Yeah, this seems so much fun. <laughs> I can't stop watching. It's amazing. That's so good. Uh, we should totally do something like that. <laughs> That's awesome. We have to do like, you know, find like a script and do a dramatic read of something like that. Well, I can only imagine like, what's dad doing in the other room? Oh, he's doing, he's recording for his TV show. <laughs> you just hear in the other room like, wow, go, go. And then like, you know, we'll be ready in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Oh, God, that's so funny. That's hilarious. That's just incredible. Oh. So I mentioned Jackie Chan earlier. We both mentioned Jackie Chan earlier. 
we compared his movies to this one. We, we talked about, you know, Jackie Chan as a fighter and everything. Did you know that Jackie Chan was actually in Enter the Dragon? I did, What? but only really? after mm. I watched it. Is he a bowler? No. What? No. <laughs> was that racist? <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, Jackie Chan plays one of the henchmen that Lee fights in the bunker or in the secret lair or whatever you want to call it near the end of the movie. Really? Yeah, Chan attacks Lee from behind. I, a very young Jackie Chan. But Lee kind of, you know takes control of the situation, holds Chan by, I think by the hair, beats up a few other guys, and then breaks Chan's neck. It's not, it's not a, a massive role or anything. <laughs> wow. <laughs> But apparently he got, like, Bruce Lee kicked him in the head by accident, and, like, they, that, they like, bonded oh, over really? that, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's Sorry cool. I kicked you in the head. I don't... <laughs> Thanks for that <laughs> demonstration, how that might go. But yeah, no, I, I don't know how Jackie Chan actually got involved in his film career. Because I imagine, like, he wouldn't have been a big actor and then he did this. I assume this is before he made it big, but... Yeah, um, that's So, like, in, in a way, he's sort of like, when Bruce died, he kind of was taking over the mantle a little bit. Hmm. So let me tell you a bit about Bruce Lee's life and like where this movie fits in his short career. He, he's only shot like five movies over two years before he died. Like his career was really short. I was really interested in reading about Bruce Lee's life because, you know, when Barrio Yu chose to do this movie, I was really surprised to find out that it's an American movie. Also that Bruce Lee was actually born in America. I thought... His entire life and his entire career was based in China or something. So I was really looking forward to getting into that. And it's kind of an interesting story. So, yeah, Bruce was born in America in 1940. His family had moved to Hong Kong, though, when he was just a baby. If I remember correctly, it was hard for them to find work in America. So they moved back to Hong Kong. And his father was an actor. He used to take Bruce on sets with him. And Bruce Lee actually appeared in movies... throughout his life, even as a baby. And he got his first lines in a movie by the age of six. And if I remember correctly, even then people were talking about how charming he is as an actor. As a teenager, he did some acting, he was a, a dancer, but he often got in trouble. At some point he was involved in a fight with the son of a mobster or something, and his parents sent him to martial arts lesson to kind of learn to protect himself. And I read he was a very, very dedicated student and that, you know, he also really took in a lot of the philosophy stuff. He really was into that. And I've heard that one time he told all of the other students that the teacher was sick and not coming so that they would leave and he could have a private lesson. Hmm. <laughs> But he kept getting into trouble and into fights and stuff. So his parents sent him to live with friends in America, I think in Seattle. The, the plan was to send him away and get him away from trouble. He finished high school, he went to university as a philosophy major, and he was kind of teaching his friends everything he knew about martial arts, and they encouraged him to open his own school of martial arts, which he did. I think he taught his own style of fighting, which was based on a mixture of a few other styles, and he also taught his own philosophy. And around that time, he met Linda, which became his wife, with which he had two kids, Brendan and Shannon. Throughout the years, he opened a few new locations of his martial arts school, and they moved to California to try to get jobs in Hollywood. Bruce already had experience in acting. He got a role as Cato in the Green Hornet TV show, which is something interesting about that role. 
Bruce would not do anything on that show that was, you know, stereotypical or demeaning to Asians, as was kind of expected from non-Caucasian actors. They basically didn't cast non-Caucasian mm. actors for major roles. Another interesting thing is that they had to slow him down when they were filming <laughs> the fight scenes. Like, he was too fast for the equipment to capture. They literally couldn't capture his movements. That's cool. <laughs> But anyway, The Green Hornet was canceled after one season, and people did like Bruce and his personal charm in the show, but he didn't get any other parts. He did play in a few secondary roles, but he never did get a considerable role, at least at that point. And as far as I heard, he really couldn't find an acting job because, like I said, Asian actors were only hired to play stereotypical Asian roles and weren't even considered for any serious role. I read that at some point, Lee was working with a Hollywood producer on a project called Kung Fu about a Chinese Kung Fu master, but the Hollywood producer never even considered Lee for the role because he was too Chinese looking mm. and they ended up casting a white guy in Chinese makeup, which... I know I'm looking at it from 50 years in the future and judging them, but come on, that's embarrassing stuff. Yeah, that's bad. Anyway, Bruce became a fight coordinator for movies and a private martial arts instructor. Like, he would teach Hollywood stars at their homes. And in 1970, Bruce's career took another setback because he hurt his back in a way that made doctors tell him he would never be able to perform again. But, you know, Bruce Lee created this exercise regimen that worked for him and really not long after that he was back on his feet and Bruce considered his career in Hollywood to be over like he hated the fact that only white actors got good roles so he moved to Hong Kong and when he got to Hong Kong he realized that his role as Kato from the Green Hornet TV show made him a star there like the Hong Kong locals called that show the Kato show he was huge in Hong Kong and he He got to star in his first movie called The Big Boss in 1971, which was really successful and made him known even outside of Hong Kong. He played in two more Hong Kong productions, which were also successful. And then he made a movie called The Way of the Dragon, which is also a Hong Kong production, which Bruce wrote, directed, played in, choreographed. He even recorded some of the music for the movie. He basically did everything on this movie. And I bet he named it as well. Yeah. <laughs> if, if he lived another 10 years, we would have just had like being the dragon. And <laughs> See the dragon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Approaching the dragon. <laughs> and one more interesting fact about Way of the Dragon is that this was Chuck Norris's first role in a movie. Uh, I think Chuck was Lee's student at some point. Anyway, when Bruce finished working on Way of the Dragon, he started working on Game of Death, a movie that would feature another one of Lee's students, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But while he was working on Game of Death, he was finally offered a role in a high-budget Hollywood movie, Enter the Dragon. And he put Game of Death aside, and he went to do Enter the Dragon. And after filming and while editing Enter the Dragon, Bruce became ill, And as far as I've read, the doctors couldn't really tell what was wrong with him. And, you know, once he was feeling better, he went back to work on Game of Death. And then two months after his first hospitalization, he went to visit uh, an actress that worked on Game of Death. And he had a uh, headache. So she gave him some painkillers and he went to lay down. And a few hours later, she tried to wake him up. She was unsuccessful. He was rushed to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. The death was... Obviously sudden and unexpected. 
Some thought he was mysteriously murdered or that he was a victim of a weird oriental curse or something. In the end, he suffered a cerebral edema, which is a fluid buildup around the brain, while also experiencing a rare allergic reaction to the painkillers he took. He died 32 years old in 1973 after appearing in only five movies. And the movie he was working on, Game of Death, was completed with a lookalike actor uh, and released, I think, in 1978, a few years after Lee's death. And I, I think it's not considered to be a great movie, but it was a financial success. So, like, all in all, his big role only came in 1971. His last role was in Enter the Dragon, which was a role that kind of made him a legend. It came in 1973. And despite the short span of time he had worked, his legacy is considered to be massive. He paved the way to many martial artists and actors, and uh, his movies basically popularized the genre. Kind of a sad story. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so Enter the Dragon... This is actually just such a good gap to fill, I think. This movie is responsible for so much in this in this genre oh, yeah. of kung fu movies. Not my favorite genre, yeah. Yeah, it's the... not my favorite <laughs> genre, but it I was actually pretty excited to go into it and watching it is such a pleasant experience. It's not that long of a film and it sort of flows quite nicely. Like it's never too um sort of stressful. It always has like an element of humor in it, but it develops quite well. Obviously, Bruce Lee is the standout in this film. You, If you're watching it, you're sort of watching it for Bruce Lee. I don't know if you would ever really watch this movie f- on its own merits without him. And it's a fun thing to watch, especially if you're like me and you've sort of grown up in the Jackie Chan era. It is nice to go back and see where a lot of these things came from and see almost like the OG of this genre. Obviously, whenever someone dies early... It's always one of those sad things where sometimes we do build up their achievements quite a bit. Like I'm, I'm thinking of Heath Ledger or in the in the Joker, mm-hmm. or um, potentially Jimi Hendrix. Like short careers, but after like their death, th- sort of brings what they did to the surface, and people go through in a bit more finer detail because once they're gone, there's nothing they're gonna produce after that so it's kind of like a time to stop and really reflect on it in a really respectful way and i think this movie's just a really nice one to have in have in the bank you know like i'm glad that he got to film it before he died because um it's really quite a nice film flaws aside i think a lot of people should watch it i think it is fun a fun movie to watch and like it is worth your time if you're just gonna watch it once and and move on and I definitely recommend watching it once with, like, friends and beers and, you know, kind of a more jokey environment. It's a fun movie. There's a An- lot. Anything should be done with beers, yeah. really. <laughs> but friends, definitely. I do think it's a good movie, but I do think it's it's a funny movie. That being said, it does have a bunch of flaws. It's not great. It's not too deep. The fight scenes, there are better fight scenes in other movies. Bruce Lee is kind of a legend, and I'm really glad I got to know some of his work. I'm I, I'm mm. happy to be able to say that I know a thing or, or two about him now. So, as we do at the end of each step of our quest, we're going to take a vote that will decide whether or not Enter the Dragon has a place in the Culture Quest Essentials Guide. We will each have a chance to persuade each other and state our case for or against Enter the Dragon's induction to the Quag, and then we will vote with a gentlemanly 
tip of the hat for yay, or an ominous stroke of the mustache for nay, and the vote must be unanimous in order for it to pass. Look, as I said, had a great time, and this is responsible for quite a bit of the history of the genre. If you if you just want to say, oh, let's watch the definitive action movies. Sure, James Bond, you know, Die Hard, there's a few like main ones, yeah. but it's hard to capture a genre. This one is actually filling up. It's doing a lot of heavy lifting. This is it. This is sort of it. So I do regret ominously stroking my mustache a little bit, but just because it's the thing of the genre, like I've, I still want to maintain that as a film by itself, removing Bruce Lee, it's, it's sort of middle of the road, you know, like, and obviously it does have Bruce Lee, so you need to factor that in. But, you know, like, I, I think it would be really nice if people found this on their own, but I can't, I can't just put it in the quake. I, I, I think it has just a few too many flaws. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I Like, I think this was a fun experience. I think it was a great choice by Barrio. I'm really glad we've done it. I was really glad to cover this part of, you know, kind of the general pop culture world. Mm. That being said, I, I do think it's kind of a fairly mediocre experience in the end. Like... You know, I, there's a lot of things we've done in genres or styles that I didn't expect to like that ended up being great. Like, the the best example I can think of is Jurassic Park. Like, I, I think I always knew people love it and that I should watch it, but I didn't expect to like it because I thought it was just a horror film or just an adventure film, you know? And it's it's much, much more than that. So because Enter the Dragon was kind of a legendary movie, I always kind of thought that maybe... When I watch it, it'll be kind of like Jurassic Park. It'll be much more than what I expected it to be. And I'll totally understand why it's such a legend. And I don't know. uh, Jurassic Park proved to be much more than I expected it to be. But this didn't really. So I like this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. I don't think it's essential. Maybe only if you're a Kung Fu fan. But then you don't really need me to tell you about this movie. Barrio, anything to add? Uh, no, tip of the hat. Oh, you're tipping no, your hat? Uh, no, 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 uh, stroke <laughs> of the mustache. <laughs> yeah, so it's a triple stroke. <laughs> I was super surprised about that. You were more negative than yeah. me. <laughs> like, to sum it all, it's the best movie I've ever watched. <laughs> <laughs> For our next episode, we're going to watch The Muppet Movie from 1979. I didn't see a lot of Muppet stuff in my life, so I don't really know them well, but from what I've seen, I think I'll like the kind of humor and the story and everything. Like, I think this movie also has a few songs in it, which I think is going to be fun, though I think it's a bit of a turnoff for you, Peter, right? You don't like songs in movies? Uh, usually not, but I haven't had so much exposure to okay. know if it's really the songs or if it's been just a few bad movies, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I have a good feeling about this. I think it's going to be funny, sweet, and charming, I think. And, um, you know, I kind of want to get to know the Muppets a bit better. And uh, the the next episode, uh, you should introduce the the episode in, in a Kermit voice. I'll, I'll start working on my uh, Kermit impersonation. Welcome to the Culture Quest. <laughs> wow, that's really good. Yeah, that was pretty good. Oh, thank, thank, <laughs> yeah. thank you. I thought it was going to be more like... Welcome to the Culture Quest! (laughs) 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 Kermit's turning into Super Saiyan. Super Saiyan Kermit. (laughs) No, I would watch that movie. So, thank you, Peter, and thank you, Barrio, for staying true to our goal. And thank you, the listeners at home, for helping us along the latest stage of our quest. We hope that you join us again next episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Bye bye. I, I, we should do a Kermit off mm-hmm. next episode. Yes, that sounds great. The Culture Quest podcast is part of All the People Network. Visit our website at culturequestpodcast.com to contact us or see a list of our upcoming episodes. Follow us on Twitter at CQ underline podcast and tell your friends about us. Find out more information about All the People Network and the other podcasts it includes at allthepeoplenetwork.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I just wanted to bring to everyone's attention all those people that are currently stuck without their phone and are forced to continue listening to this unless they pause it and then have to contemplate, you know, the state of their life and other things. So you'll probably just continue listening. I just wanted to give a bit of a shout out to a um, a website, actually. It's called givewell.org. So that's give, G-I-V-E, well, W-E, double L dot org. So it's, it's a dot org. So it's, it's legit. And, um, basically they're the authority on who is worth giving money to in terms of charity. So obviously we'll give money to friends and family if they fall on hard times. But if you are thinking about giving large sums of money to, um, charities, it's definitely best to do your research because, a lot of people just give away money and want to feel good, but it's also good to think of it as an investment and how you can do the most good. So it's not asking you to give away more money, but it's asking you to give the money away in a responsible way. And um, basically, they've just authorized eight charities. So out of all the, I want to say hundreds of thousands of charities, might be a bit lower, but they've authorized only eight. And I think it's really good to just scan through the list and um, see if you can consider donating to these charities. So um, I think that would be good if we can all sort of band together during these tough times. At the moment, it's COVID, but, you know, that will change and we're all going to need to support everyone. So this is probably one of the best evidence-based ways to do that. So yeah, so definitely hop on to givewell.org if you're considering and hopefully those charities are like tax deductible or something in your country, which would be in your best interest. So anyway, this is not Formal advice, but it's just a good place to go. Thank you. When you're caring for someone with Alzheimer's, it's normal to feel alone. Searching for answers to daily struggles and challenges and not finding solutions is also normal. There are books and Facebook pages galore, but when you're caring for someone with such a debilitating disease, time is a precious resource. I know. My mom had Alzheimer's for about 20 years, and I was her primary caregiver for the last three of them. I searched for solutions and a little bit of hope, but answers didn't come easily. One day I realized a podcast might be the solution to that struggle, only there weren't very many options. So I created the Fading Memories podcast. My name is Jennifer, and I talk to people who have the answers to the questions that regularly frustrate caregivers. Join us weekly, wherever you get your podcasts, for information, inspiration, and honestly, some very needed laughs.